Hello guys, welcome back to the dungeon crawl. It's good to see you. It's good to be here. I know last week I said I was maybe not going to have an episode out this week because I had some ideas planned. This actually wasn't the idea that I had planned. But I buckled down, came up with this idea, and I'm still working on the other one, um, which is going to be fun. Um, but some of you may know that I am a therapist, counselor, technically counselor in training, I guess. Uh, but I'm almost there, super close. Should be there at the end of this uh, summer. But I was listening to a psychology podcast, uh, and they were talking about using improv in counseling. Using the, the tenets, I guess I should say, of improv and counseling. And they had uh, the, a guy on by the name of Kelly Leonard. Uh, he wrote a book with another man by the name of Tom Yorton called Yes And. How Improvisation Reverses No But. Thinking and Improves Creativity and Collaboration. Lessons from the Second City. If you don't know what Second City is, it is a comedy theater based out of Chicago. Um, it's been prolific in like the people that have come through it like uh john belushi bill murray gilda radner mike myers steve carell stephen colbert tina fey and many many more have come through that theater it doesn't just do improv but it's definitely renowned for its improv um comedy as well as its skits and stuff like that but also besides comedy it hosts uh presentations for businesses to help them in various ways and there's a book that I read is kind of geared to incorporating the ideas of improv into everyday life. So they kind of took the stuff that they've learned from the business side of their presentations and from the theater stuff and kind of combined it together into this book. Um, and as I was listening to this podcast, talking about how incorporating improv and counseling, which is very cool, um, I started getting ideas on like, you know, the, you probably all heard of Yes And, which is you know, in the title of the book, that gets tossed around a lot in D&D settings and tabletop RPG settings about this is something that if you're going to play in this space, this is something you need to be aware of and you should be incorporating the yes and. But there's a lot more to improv than just yes and. Yes and is the, is the basic idea. And so as I was listening to this podcast, I was like, okay, this is, I feel like a lot of stuff is very applicable to D&D. It could be important to talk about. So I picked up the book, Yes and, How to Improvisation, yada, yada, um, which I'll put down in the description below. Um, and as I was reading it, I got, I thought this would be a perfect um, episode. So I kind of sped read it through this past week. Um, and I'm going to break it up into seven elements. Um, uh, Kelly and, um, and, and, and Yorton um, break it up. Um, Kelly Leonard and Tom Gordon uh, bro broke up the elements of improv into seven specific sections. That's how I'm going to uh, pull it through here. I'm going to be pulling some from the book, but also from my own D&D knowledge, I guess, and try to incorporate in D&D. But again, also a lot of the stuff not only applies to D&D, but also just working in groups, period, is um, a lot of these tenets are very important in the um, just the creative spaces or like working in a group project at school and stuff like that. Just go start with this, the first element. I already mentioned it, the yes and. As I said, most people have probably heard of this quote unquote rule, this element of improv. And I would say it's definitely the most talked about and most known about, uh, especially when referring to utilizing improv into something like D&D or Pathfinder or tabletop RPGs as a whole. What exactly is the yes and? So when there's no script or guide for something, whether that be for improv or, or tabletop RPGs, one performer slash player in this instance offers an idea and the other performers affirm this idea, that's the yes part, and then build onto it. That's the and. <laughs> An example of this in play would be like you're sneaking around a castle, right? A place where you're not supposed to be. A guard, the NPC, as the DM is playing, stops the party and says, Hey, halt, what are you doing in this part of the castle? You know, something like that. And someone responds with, Oh, hey, we're just looking for my mom. Uh, she works in the kitchen over here. Instead of responding as a DM or possibly as another player with, no, your mom doesn't work here. Oh, no, your mom has been dead for 20 years. John, what are you talking about? That shuts down the creative scene. That shuts down what is building, right? Instead, you could ask a question like, yeah, you could ask a question or continue along with saying something like, um, 
right. Uh, she bakes the best pie in, in all around, right? The best chicken pot pie. <laughs> I do think yes and happens a lot with DMs to players specifically, um, but it also you know, definitely happens player to player as well. Um, something that I thought about as a player to DM perspective is kind of building your backstory together during gameplay. Like, cause there's, there's no way me and another human being are going to discuss the entire backstory and history to your tiefling that you're playing that's lived for 20, 30, 40 years before we start playing. That's the, there's a lot of days in between there. There's a lot of time. We're not going to discuss everything. We're going to hit the highlights maybe at most, right? And there are times when, as a player, you want to build on stuff in play where you think, okay, you know, we haven't discussed this, but this this is probably something my player would have experience in or something my player, you know, we never talked about my mom, but yeah, my mom is a chef. That could be fun, kind of fun. <laughs> so you can, you can, the player would then bring this into the game and say it and, and put their stamp down on it. And then the DM can pick up on that and be like, okay, so they obviously want their mom to, to work in a kitchen. Okay. Um, maybe they don't necessarily work in this castle. Because, um, you know, maybe I, I know everyone that works in the castle or, or whatever, but they can work in another castle. They can be a chef. And so they can have that knowledge. They can they can work along those lines. Um, so a lot of world building, character building is kind of the yes and experience for, for DMs to players. Another example that I was thinking of is let's say you're hiding in a storeroom, right? Uh, in the same part of the castle that you're not supposed to be in. And the DM uh, describes someone coming in here like footsteps outside the player thinking on their feet decides to grab a hammer off of the ground and pretends that they're working on some sort of construction project or like they're a construction worker or whatever the dm myself didn't describe a hammer i didn't describe everything in the storeroom but logically speaking that hammer would there would probably be a hammer inside of a storeroom right logically speaking quote unquote i as a dm could say no, there aren't any hammers here. Uh, you know, what are you talking about? There's no hammers in this space. That shuts down the scene. The ingenuity of the player, boom, over. Or I could add on to it and have the NPC come in and either think they are who they say they are, which can or, or might have a role or two involved. It doesn't have to be. I think a lot of people get too caught up in the dice. And I know we're playing a, a tabletop RPG where dice are involved. But I very rarely make my players roll persuasion or deception checks if they are visibly acting that, like showing that. And you have to be a, a, an actor to be able to try to convince someone something. I only make them roll if it's a little sketchy or like they're trying to convince somebody something that that person knows is objectively not true. So, you know, if the player is, is full on getting into it and is is like this construction thing, I probably wouldn't make them make a roll because that's, that's you know, unless they're very <laughs> hesitant with their, um, with their word choices. Um, but you can have the NPC, you know, go along with it or another player could go along with it and say, oh, I'm going to pick up a, a construction board or a, um, a piece of wood and, and pretend like we're hammering it together or something, you know, and you can build on the scene together. It also makes me think of the I know a guy trope of D&D, um, which can be a, a beautiful way to world build together. Um, I guess if you don't know what, what I know a guy is, it's where the DM has a, a city and the players are inside said city. And a, one of the players goes, hey, I know a guy that lives here. He's got he's runs a blacksmith. Uh, he runs a blacksmithery or. Uh, he's, I, I know the, I know the guy he became the mayor of the place or something like that. And that can be a fun way to build up, um, connections in a city where the, the DM can now have an NPC. Okay. That's kind of fun. Yeah. Now I have an NPC in here that knows the player and they can now connect into different quest lines and plot lines and stuff like that. The, I know a guy trope only, it becomes a meme whenever the guys, one of the players says, oh yeah, I know a guy who has the deck of many things. I know a guy who's got the verbal sword, you know, that, that has the strongest items in the game. And he's just going to give it all to us for free. Or he's got a teleportation circle. He's just going to get us out of the seventh layer of hell and get us all the way back to where we're supposed to be going. He, he's got the the fork for the for the plane shift spell. That's when it kind of falls apart. 
And sure, maybe as a DM, you could do the yes and and go along with that and say, yeah, he did have it at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that kind of does come into the yes, but yes, he did have it, but he lost it. And that can be less fun, but it's kind of on the other guy too for making something that is obviously almost like a power game kind of way. Um, uh, Leonard and uh, Yorton have a um, talking about yes and they say, with yes and you don't have to act on every idea, but you do have to give every idea a chance to be acted upon. This simple idea has amazing power and potency to improve interpersonal communication, negotiation, and conflict resolution. I'm going to see where this yes and the improv ideas don't just stick within improv or on a stage or even in D&D. A lot of these ideas can come from all sorts. Of, and I definitely recommend picking up the book if, you, if you're interested in any of the things I'm saying here. Again, I'll link it down below because this very much is the groundwork for not only just improv, but creativity and innovation, period. It's what allows all the other elements, the six other that I'll get to um, exist, to, to exist. Um, and I think hitting on the giving every idea a chance to be acted on isn't just shooting stuff down the second someone, you know, mentions something else. And again, I'll talk about it later, but I'm going to hit it now. Everything I'm referring to here is beautiful in a vacuum, right? If you have a problem player or you have someone in there that loves pushing the buttons or, or pushing the envelope of what the group has set out in session zero or anything like that, then this is where it starts to fall apart. Because obviously if someone is bringing in something that is either inappropriate or, I mean, inappropriate to the to the group, but also inappropriate to the setting or to... The, uh, the 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 system that you're using, every idea can't be acted upon because it's either harming other people or it's physically impossible in this world, in this setting. And so again, laying the groundwork for that stuff should happen at session zero. And I'll discuss this a little bit further later, what you can do with those players who refuse or don't want to listen to what is perfect or what happens in this setting and wants to make their own thing. So again, take everything I'm saying with a sort of grain of salt that these elements are important to recognize and in a perfect working group, all these elements should be there. They won't always be. The second element is the ensemble. Learning to work together in a group is a very crucial aspect of the D&D experience. And you might all know each other. You might all be friends, right? You might know each other from school or from work. Or you know two of them and you get two other people that know the other friend and you kind of all get a hodgepodge group together. Maybe you don't know anybody. You just you just came in off of Reddit or off of a Discord group. Or you, you walked into an LGS and saw a group getting ready and you decide to hop in. So finding a way to learn who everybody is and connecting with everybody is a tough aspect of this group portion. And it happens with every group, really. The understanding, getting to know everybody is a scary and anxiety-provoking experience. <laughs> but if you can make it work, if you can work well together, that's why it's an element of not only improv, but I'd say in the D&D experience too, working well together is a very crucial aspect of it and connecting and understanding each other's strengths and weaknesses. The issue occurs when people believe that they're more important than the ensemble. would not only ruin the enjoyment for everybody, but also eventually for themselves because they think they're the most important, that the spotlight should always be on them. And that enjoyment will fall apart because the spotlight will not always be them. It's impossible for the spotlight, especially in a D&D &D setting, improv setting as well, for the spotlight to always be on this one person. They're not going to be a part of every scene. And that's okay. We'll talk about this later, but that's, that's about um, co-creation as well, but also like following the follower. Be able to pass the torch from one person to the other that there's always a, a fluid exchange of leadership roles. Leonard and Yorton say the three main enemies of a high-functioning ensemble are, quote, the need to be right, the need to steal focus, and the need to appear in control even when the evidence is otherwise. I think you could break down all of these that the need to be right comes down, let's say in a D&D &D, say the need to be right is no matter what I have to succeed. 
myself. I have to succeed no matter what. I don't care what is happening with the other group members. I'm going to save myself 10 times out of 10, not even nine times out of 10, 10 times out of 10. The need to steal focus is if the <laughs> scene is you know, two NPC or two players together, maybe an NPC or maybe an NPC and a player like two, like an important backstory moment is happening. The other player says, oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting over in the corner and I'm going to butt in at, at some point and, and turn the attention back over to themselves. And then finally, the need to appear in control, even when the evidence is otherwise. In a D&D context, this makes me think of you don't have the, the stealth abilities. You don't have the and sure you can build it into your character. That they're super over uh, confident in everything. They think they can accomplish everything by themselves. OK, that's great. That's fun for a character. But you're working as a player in a group of five other people. So you got to find a way to make that work with everybody. And constantly having to overshine others when obviously someone else has the better strength or has the better, by strength, I mean the better strength in this area, like the better stealth, not just the strength skill, the strength ability. <laughs> um, and forcing yourself on top of that, that's, the, that's an enemy of a high-functioning ensemble, a high-functioning group in D&D settings. Performing well within the group oftentimes leads to a better and more impactful solo moment as well. You all are working well together, can build to these big extravagant moments. I mean, think of like some of your favorite fantasy movies or anime or, or even just movies, period. The group is working together and then boom, the main character right here, specifically in a movie, has, the, has some sick moment or the side character has some cool moment with some backstory character or they all build up together and... And half the party's dead, and this one person is able to, to save everyone with one final spell or something. Instead of one person monopolizing the whole scene and making, eventually, I would say, the scene a lot worse. A tight-knit and functioning group can create some incredible, incredible moments. And if I'm able to suggest something to you, which I am going to, I suggest finding ways to get closer to your group. Show up early, stay a bit later, talk about things other than the D&D game, hang out outside of D&D, if able to, of course. It's not always possible to not only create a four-hour block in your week to play D&D, but then also create more time to hang out outside. I just think it's very, very helpful to become a closer friend group, and that way you can understand each other better inside of the game as well. That brings us to the third element, co-creation. They have a quote, Yorton and um, Leonard, that says, dialogues push stories further than monologues. And I think DMs need to remember this as well, because there's a lot of times, myself as a DM, I've created a really cool uh, monologue for a villain or an enemy or not even just a monologue from a person, but a gigantic monologue from myself, explaining what's going on, jumping to a character to say something, jumping back to the scene to describe what's going on. That leaves the players with very little agency. And we're not communicating, we're not co-creating together. I'm just creating a really cool scene. And that has its place, trust me. It has its place to create cool, impactful moments. But be wary of how often that you are, even as a DM, monopolizing the scene and monologuing. And again, for players... Be wary, again, of how often you are monologuing and taking away the dialogue of everyone around you and preventing that co-creation aspect. Creating things together, as said with the ensemble element, often proves to be greater than creating something solo. Leonard and Jorn, again, they talk about finding the idea, not your idea. It's about being okay with not being the spotlight and allowing the group to create together as a cohesive element where again, the spotlight is not necessarily on you or the guy next to you, but it's on yourself as the group. Being afraid is a large barrier to this fear of failure, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Fear of looking silly, which is a large part of the early new group, anxiety jitters, and fear of the unknown. Being worried about what will happen if we open this door? You don't know what's behind that door. You don't know what your dice are going to do with certain dexterity or strength checks, charisma checks. You don't know exactly what will happen. 
So being afraid of that moment can prevent that co-creation. And you like having that sense of control. So instead of relinquishing that control of someone else, you decide to, to have your monologue or have your moment where you are able to control the scene a little bit better. Fear is a big thing. And I think a lot of it goes to D&D as a... I hate to use the word nerd. I mean, it is nerdy, geeky, whatever term you want to use. The type of people that play D&D, myself included, have a lot of anxiety, especially social anxiety when it comes to being around other people. And then when you drop it into a tabletop RPG landscape where you have to role play and, and maybe use funny voices or do weird things together, <laughs> that only adds that anxiety. So I get it. It's tough. It's not easy to relinquish that control, to relinquish that fear, that anxiety. And it might always be there. But the few times that I've noticed where you're able to, where I'm able to, the benefit far outweighs whatever fear I might have had. Dealing with that anxiety, that fear, is very important because otherwise it is nigh impossible to live in the moment and to create together when this anxiety is consuming your thoughts. <laughs> I know I'm talking about D&D here, but that also applies to everything. Everyday life, that when this... These thoughts, these running thoughts, these racing thoughts of the fear, the anxiety of being around people, the fear of messing up, looking silly. I have a, have a client right now that I'm working with that he's constantly worried about these overwhelming thoughts and feelings of anxiety rushing, uh, of how other people are, are viewing him because of what he might say, what he might do. And so we, you do nothing. I do nothing when that happens. And again, that prevents the co-creation aspect of the game that we're playing. It's also important to read the room. And I think that phrase also gets tossed around, not even just in a tabletop RPG landscape, but just in general, reading the room, understanding the... As a DM, it's a very important tool because you're able to you know, read the body language of the players around you and say, okay, these two people are checked out. This person over here is obviously uncomfortable with what's going on, and this guy's having a great time. What is happening here? What can I do to, to remedy this and bring everybody back in? That also is helpful for players as well to be able to look at these things. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later too. But specifically what I'm referring to in this instance with reading the room is seeing what is appropriate to the scene that you are acting in, playing in, and your ensemble slash group. This is, again, important for DMs to lay the groundwork for all of this in Session Zero. So if there are no dinosaurs in your world, you shouldn't be polymorphing into dinosaurs later. But that should be something that is referred to in Session Zero and not later when the player is like, hey, I'm going to polymorph into a T-Rex. And the, and the DM's like, oh, hold up. There's no dinosaurs in this world. Okay. If you have a, you know, if you can explain it like that and the player's fine, fine, sure. But that can also shut down some of the player's enjoyment, some of the player's excitement. And so again, talking about that before in Session Zero, and you might not be thinking about dinosaurs in Session Zero, but now start thinking about your dinosaurs in your world at Session Zero. <laughs> but and that's, uh, to me, that's a, that's a simple way of explaining also the idea of bringing up you know, sexual content or bringing up things that are obviously uncomfortable to the group um, and to everybody as a whole. Um... And I'm looking something up here. Everybody as a whole um, in your game. So keep that in mind. Look around. Don't bring anything into the room. Don't create something that is not appropriate for what everyone wants in this moment. And that can be very tough. These, these are not easy skills to do or to master. So again, I think just being aware of these ideas and thinking about them can already start elevating your game experience. The fourth element authenticity don't be afraid to bend the rules take that rule the rule's still there but now it's you know it's kind of something different i've created my own thing to achieve something great the rules seem too confiding especially in a game like DD. don't be afraid to push outside of that box and then as a dm be okay with players pushing outside the box there aren't explicit rules for many things that my players want to do in game but the quote-unquote, you know, rule of cool, where it's so much cooler for the players to have ingenuity, to have fun ideas, that I don't care if there's not a rule for it. We'll make 
something fun happen either way. And they might circumvent a, a tough boss that I had or a tough encounter that I might have built, a puzzle that I created. But what that player just thought of or what that player just did will will be a story that we'll be talking about probably for <laughs> for years or, or at least very at very least months later. And to be open to the change. Be open to twisting and, and moving and changing these rules and what works and what doesn't work. Having a constant dialogue on what is and what isn't working with your players. Whether that is rules specifically, like you bring in a homebrew rule that you find out you you use the, I can't remember the, the, the class's name, but one of the classes from Matt Colville's um, book that was very seemed very overpowered compared to the other classes in D&D. You bring that in and suddenly you're overshining every other player in combat. Okay, well, let's have a dialogue on what is and what isn't working. That's not that's fun for you, but not fun for anybody else in the room. Okay, let's see if we can find a, a way to bring that to a level that's more fun for everybody. Where you're still having fun, we're not going to completely nerf your character so you're not no longer having fun and everyone else is having fun. We're going to find a way to make it so that everyone's having fun. And that might be a couple dialogues. It might be a couple conversations on, okay, we might have pushed it a little too far. Maybe we didn't push it far enough. But also not just homebrew rules. I think this also applies to everything. What is, isn't working thematically in your world, thematically in your story. Having a dialogue with your players as a DM, as we discussed a few episodes ago, is a constant and evolving thing. And you should never stop asking your players on if they're having fun or, or what could be better. It's also, I think, authenticity comes to the bubble, authentic to the group. And the bubble I'm referring to is the bubble that you and your ensemble are in. If this right here, sorry for my audio listeners, I'm holding up my hands in like a dome formation. The bubble is and what isn't appropriate for the group. So maybe you got, you know, slavery or, or racism or, you know, some, some, some more dicey thematic ideas that people don't always want to play in their games uh, or sexual content outside of the bubble, right? Or maybe dinosaurs right here. If dinosaurs don't exist in your world, fine. <laughs> so this is your bubble, right? Everything else, fair game inside here. All your players are having fun in here. You're the DM are having fun inside this dome, inside this bubble. Once you step outside of this bubble, only one person is having fun. Because this is the norm. This is the bubble that you have set up in session zero. And once you step outside of it, the only person having fun is the person that pulled everybody outside of the bubble because they wanted to add in sexual content that no one else wanted. They wanted to add a dinosaur into the world that no one else wanted because they all agreed to the bubble in session zero. So DMs, make your bubble in session zero. Talk to everybody. See what everyone wants and what they don't want. And then don't leave the bubble. If you feel yourself leaving the bubble, that's when you go back up. And have the dialogue and say, hey, guys, I realized I might have pushed outside the bubble last time. <laughs> might have gone outside the box a little bit. Was that OK? Is it, was anyone got any complaints? And be OK if someone says something in the middle of the game. Say, hey, uh, I'm not comfortable with this happening right now. You could even do the whole um, we talked about in the podcast a while ago of people would hold up little um, paper slips. I had an X on it or maybe a red slip or something, meaning. They're not, ha they're not happy with what's going on. They're not comfortable with what's happening. And we don't have to say anything. Say anything. You can even just flip it over in front of your, your, um, uh, your desk area. So people know, okay, let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Let's move on. And then bring that up to the person later, one-on-one. -on -one, say, hey, so what was going on there? Are you okay? What's going on? Check in with that player. To the fifth element now. Failure. Making mistakes work for you is a large part of improv and a very large part of D&D because you won't always succeed at everything. I know, I hate to break it to you, but the dice are not always in your favor. And sometimes they are. That natural 20, beautiful moments can be had. Screams heard all across the table. People excited that you got that nat 20. But D&D is inherently a game of chance. And there'll be plenty of times where these mistakes will happen. You know, quote unquote, mistakes. Where you will fail when you as your character, maybe even as your player, feel like you should have succeeded. You're the arcana guru of the group. And you just so happen to roll a five or a nat one. And you don't have the answers that day. And you feel like a failure. You could take that and be upset, annoyed. Or you can make the failure work in and your ensemble slash party's favor. 
By doing this, something new and oftentimes unexpected, well, not even oftentimes, always unexpected, but oftentimes good, can largely, uh, can largely create more enjoyable moments than what otherwise would have occurred. I think as a DM being aware, because the, the interesting thing about D&D or anything where there's a game master involved, the DM or GM is the one that has to narrate said failure most of the times. So don't always make it so it's the player's fault, the character's fault for, you know, for that arcana check. It could very well, you know, easily be explained, oh, you were asleep in class that day. Boom. It's your fault, buddy. Sorry. Instead, if they roll in that one, have the environment react poorly around them. Maybe they were about to explain the idea and then someone bumped into them and, and you start a whole new scene and they forgot their train of thought. I guess it's still kind of their fault. Um... But uh, the example that I heard of the other day is that there's a bard performing in front of a, a tavern and they roll a natural one. Well, they're an incredible musician. They know they're an incredible musician. Maybe their music's not bad. It's just not the music that the tavern was expecting to hear. Or the song they played just so happens to be the rival song, um, like the, the rival song of a sports team in the town. And how dare you play this, this song for me, right? <laughs> and the player, you know, that can make so many more exciting moments. And the player as well, when it's not the DM describing stuff, you rolled poorly, whatever, and you're describing it, find ways to make that failure work for you, that you can still succeed through these mistakes because there will be lots of failure in D&D. That's kind of the name of the game. There's the highs of the nat 20 and the lows of the nat 1. And you got every number in between, baby. You're not always going to be succeeding on every check and that's okay that's why we play this game leonard and yorton say that the biggest threat to creativity is fear especially the fear of failure and i don't think i think this couldn't be more true by not being afraid to fail specifically in tabletop rpgs you open up so many more opportunities and stories to be created to fail forward you might fail on the way there you might die on the way there but then you've your character has a revelation and now you're no longer a, a paladin, you're an oathbreaker paladin because your god lets you die or something. You know, that can lead to so many cool, so many more cooler ideas. Like when we were playing the Dungeon Chronicles a long time ago, I was fully expecting one of my characters, one of my, my, my player to die. I was fully prepared. All right, I'm excited to die here. And this is going to create a whole new environment, whole new setting for, for the party, but also for myself. Um, failing forward is a big part of D&D, not just being upset every time failure happens to you. But I, I get it. You know, people don't like to fail. What we'd like less than failing is failing in front of others. <laughs> to have a cool idea in D&D, for it to only either be shot down by the DM, say, no, it's a stupid idea. Or party members to also say, no, it's a stupid idea. Or to fail, you know, roll a, a poor number or critical failure due to the dice or other factors, can feel very humiliating. You thought you had the answer in the back of your pocket, and you screwed it up anyway. But getting past that fear of the failure and trying anyway can lead to some incredible moments. Even what could be viewed as a, you know, quote-unquote, traditional failure, for it to still occur, can get to these incredible moments anyway. You might not be able to acrobatically jump over the roof to, to sneak into the castle, but you fall face plant and then you meet a, um, maybe you fall on keys or <laughs> you fall on top of a guard crushing him, knocking him out, not killing him because you're a pacifist at the end of the day, right? But he has the keys or you meet a, uh, another thief that's walking in. You know, lots of other fun ideas a DM needs to constantly be thinking on the fly of thinking other ways. Okay, the player failed here. They're probably not feeling great. Let me find a way to, to toss a bone their way. And other players can feel the same way. Also, fail together, not alone. If you see one of your fellow party members failing at something, as in, like, you know, like I just said, they fell off the roof and they're trying to sneak it somewhere, you can join in on their failure. There's nothing worse than not only failing in front of others, but failing in front of others alone, standing on stage with all the spotlight on you, and you don't succeed. That's painful. And everyone's staring at you, crickets chirping. 
Okay, well then someone else can walk on stage with you and now you're no longer alone. You can create something new together. Churchill. Winston Churchill. This is from the book as well, so don't, don't just think I'm pulling the quotes from Churchill. Once said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. So keep getting back up. Keep grabbing those dice and try again. The sixth element of improv. Follow the follower. This means to allow any member the flexibility to assume leadership for as long as their expertise, their strengths are needed, and then to shuffle the hierarchy again once the group needs some change. This is what I referred to earlier as the constant fluidity of leadership being passed around. To apply it specifically in a D&D context, certain members will take the torch for conversations. Right? You get the more charismatic guy or the more um, outgoing player. Some are going to be more comfortable with stealth. They'll, so they'll be the leader in sneaking the party through a dungeon, maybe going about 10, 20 feet in front of them and relaying information back. It can even break, quote unquote, type, depending on what the group may mean in that instance. I mean, like the, the rogue would be the sneaker, but they don't always have to be the sneaker. They could, you know, do other things. So you can break the type. It doesn't have to be, feel like you're stuck in. Not like It's not like you're playing Overwatch where the healer has to heal and the the... The tank has to tank. You can swap things around, and the, the barbarian doesn't always have to be the stupid barbarian, doesn't talk in conversations. You can find ways to make different people work in different instances. A fluid change of who is the leader is a crucial part for having a functioning group. This is a very tough skill to master because you will inherently have people who are more outgoing, who feel more comfortable making decisions than others, who have less social anxiety or or are at least able to mask it better than others. And so they will take the de facto leadership role oftentimes and not really give it up too much because when they do, when they feel like they do, nothing ever gets done. And so again, it's a group effort to constantly being able to lift each other up, encourage each other to try and to be the leader and you, knowing each other's strengths and weaknesses and being able to Pass the torch around whenever someone's strengths should be highlighted here or need to be highlighted here or could be highlighted here. The important thing about leadership, according to Leonard and Yorton, is that it is, quote, more about understanding status or more about understanding status than about maintaining status. As in understanding the power that comes from giving up the leadership to the group yet again and passing that torch along. I think it's easy, like I said, for D&D groups to get into a norm of certain player, of a certain player or certain players making the decisions. I think being comfortable with the uncomfortability of not always knowing who to turn to will make your group stronger as you intend to turn to look to each other instead of looking to the, the leader to make the decision. You'll turn into each other, turn to the group, to the ensemble. You'll all make the, the collective decision together. This also means that it's important to read and understand your fellow players. Know when somebody is not enjoying the moment, they're having difficulty somewhere, or otherwise disengaged is a skill. And if you're able to notice these things, you can bring these individuals back into the scene, back into the game, and encourage them to stay present, and encourage them to try their ideas, to bring their ideas to the table, and to all, again, work together as a collective co-creating ensemble of yes-anding each other and, and creating fun ideas. Again, this won't be easy. Because I think even, I mean, think about the last group project you work in, whether it be at school or in a business, anywhere, even just like with your friends. It usually comes down to one person deciding where you're going to eat every time. It usually comes down to one person finalizing the decision every time. You know, D&D, &D, where you might discuss a plan for two and a half hours, three hours. No one decides anything. And so one guy's like, you know, all right, we're just going to do this one. And I was like, okay, I mean, I guess we can decide. So we're just going to do that as well. And then that person becomes a de facto leader. And this usually happens in the first, second, third session. And that norm just stays with it. Where you pass the torch to this guy every time. To this guy every time this decision comes up. But knowing each other's strengths and weaknesses... And having this fluid exchange of um, leadership roles can increase your gameplay a lot more. 
the final element of improv. And it's probably, I can't see how long we've been going here, but it's probably one of the longer episodes we've had in a, in a hot minute here. <laughs> um, the seventh element is listening. Listening is an essential part of conversations, period. And therefore is a crucial part of D&D as well. Because you think about it, D&D is just one long conversation. Being open to stretching and using our listening muscles, that's not just your ear here, but the muscle inside your head that listens, is important for any part of the creative and cooperative process. Holy listening keeps you in the scene, not looking at previous moments that you could have capitalized on or looking to the next time you can dominate a scene or just checking out entirely and pulling out your phone or iPad and looking up emails or whatever, Twitter, you know, whatever. So you're fully listening, you're fully engaged, you're fully prepared for every scene, even if you're not a part of it. Play the scene you're in, not the one you want to be in. Listen to what the rest of your group is discussing and find ways you can contribute not just to their story or your own, but the collective group ensemble's story. And again, like I said, all these build upon each other. That goes back to yes and, where you're hearing what the other player is saying, you're understanding it, you're agreeing to it, you're affirming it, and then you're building upon it. You can't really have any of these without some of the others involved as well. When you're not fully listening and are unsure of how to respond after the ball has been tossed your way, when the yes and has finished and you feel all, all the eyes looking at you, that's when that fear begins to creep in, that anxiety. And that's when the fear responses begin, whether that's, you know, rash decisions, feeling like you need to be in control, screaming at the top of your lungs so you're terrified, making anxiety decisions for yourself, not co-creating with others, not making a yes and, like a yes but or a no but, because you want to feel like you have the control. Because you weren't listening or not sure how to respond. Nearly everything NPCs or other party members say in a scene is something that could be used to add to. The and of the yes and. As said by Leonard and Yorton, quote, every word your scene partners utter is a gift, a lifeline, because it offers the rest of the ensemble something to build on. What the hell? Alexa just screamed at me, I think. Just made a noise. Um, but it is so very true. As an NPC, I say something. The DM says something as the NPC. And you can use that to say build upon or the players will respond to it and then you as the player not sure how to respond but there's always something you could grab onto doesn't mean you always have to there's always something you could so now we get to the what to do when people don't or won't follow any of these let me take a quick sip of water here as i said earlier these are all created in a best case scenario where people realize they may need to add that they may add to scenes well listen intently but realize they might not pass the leadership role very well they dominate the scene the majority of the time and so you know what they will decide i'm going to focus on that part of what ryan has discussed today <laughs> well what if you're in a group where some players are not reading the room well they're adding things to scenes that are inappropriate to the group leaving the bubble and the world at large. Let's assume you've already talked to them and these problems persist. By talking to them, and this could be a whole separate episode, and I might make an episode on what talking, you know, we always say, have you talked to your player yet? Have you talked to your, to your problem player yet? So that could be a whole separate episode. But by talking, I mean punch them in the face. They happen to say this certain phrase ever again. No, I'm kidding. I mean, having the DM talk one-on-one -on -one with them by addressing the issue, what you're noticing as the DM, what you see, because you often see more than the other players do because you're able to look at the whole picture of all the players at once. Listening to what the player then has to say. And then moving on from there to some sort of solution. Whether that means kicking them out, or them, at this point, I guess I wouldn't be a kick out. It'd be them leaving on their own accord or, or as a mutual discussion. Hey, this group might not be for you if that's what you're looking for. Um, or finding a way to meet them halfway. Say, okay, well, 
dinosaurs don't exist in my world, period. But we can find a way to maybe build, this might be a bad example. Um, then pops into my head is the is Critical Role's first campaign where guns didn't exist. Gunpowder might have existed, I can't remember. Didn't exist in Matthew Mercer's world. But um, Percy, one of the, one of the characters, um, Taliesin, he really wanted to play like the gunslinger. And so his character, Percy, was the first person in the world, like this brilliant scientist inventor that brought guns, created guns into the world. Okay, guns don't exist in my world, but we'll find a middle ground where you can make the first gun. It's not going to be a machine gun. It's not going to be a super powerful gun. It might even be, you know, something like a musket at most or a small little crappy little revolver that will combust all the time because it's, you know, it's a prototype. Okay, fine. We found some sort of solution that will work, right? Or that might have to mean, you know, just don't bring up this topic ever again. Don't bring up sexual content ever again. That's not something that we're going to do in this game. If that still doesn't work, this talk, this conversation one-on-one hasn't worked, it can be helpful, keyword is can, to have a group discussion with them. It can look similar to what you just had, except now it isn't just a DM. Other players can also include their own thoughts. Of course, ask your players ahead of time if they're okay with this. Coming from a group therapy perspective, this can be very beneficial in group therapy settings where one player or one, one member of the group says something that I, as the therapist, as the DM, I guess, in this instance, can feel icky about. Like, ooh, oh, God, they just said that, didn't they? I, I feel that inside me. It can be helpful to bring that up to the group and address it right then and there, too, to say, hey, I, you know, when you said this phrase, when you said this sentence, I felt, felt a certain way. And I wouldn't, um, I'm curious if anyone else here also felt that. Odds are at least one or two other people probably felt similarly to you. And if not, maybe it's just you. And you don't even have to include yourself as a DM. You don't have, as a DM, I would say probably you, you, you should, because you're just as important as the other players. You're all included in here. As a therapist, you probably, you don't need to. You could say, hey, I wonder if anyone else felt this way, or I wonder how anyone else felt in response to this and addressing it right then there because that person might literally have no idea i know it might be tough for you to imagine that this person has no idea what they just said or thinks what they just said is okay but it's definitely a possibility and having this conversation especially with people that are you know of the other players and are all talking together in a cohesive group might help with this so now we've explained what talking looks like. Let's assume you've already had this conversation, right? And it's still not working. If they are ruining the enjoyment for others, and 10 times out of 10, if they're pulling everyone outside the bubble, they're the only one having fun, and sadly the only real option is for them to leave the game, to continue the game without them. I know this might be easier said than done. It might be one of your best friends. You're going to have to find a way to still be friends afterwards. It's possible but it's not easy. This also can refer to the, you know, the power or problem player. Um, and my first thought here uh, to an improv example is if you watch The Office, uh, Michael Scott, the, the um, leader, the main character, Steve Carell's character of The Office, um, actually takes an improv class at one point. And there's a whole meme or a whole joke about um, the easiest way to control power in a scene, especially in improv, is to have a gun. And Michael Scott decides to bring a gun out in every single scene. And instantly, you are now the person that has all the power in said scene. And that's a whole, you know, different character, uh, <laughs> different um, character analysis we could do for Michael Scott, which we're not going to do here. But problem players... Um, power players like this. They just want to have the control all the time. They don't want to pass the torch to anybody. They want to have the best experience for themselves. And again, you're going to have to talk to them about this because the elements that we discussed today won't necessarily apply to what they're doing or they're going to be taking those elements and contorting it to fit what they want to do. And again, having those talks, having those conversations with them and then maybe continuing the game without them might be the best choice. So now what? After we've discussed all the seven elements of improv, how easy 
you think that it's implement? <laughs> it's not. It's not super easy to master, to implement, to, to, to master, let alone implement or to utilize in your game or everyday life. There's a reason that the second city um, has like a training building, like a training site, training camp where you work on these on, on simple exercises, which they do have exercises at the end of the book as well. If you want to try out some simple uh, improv exercises um, before you are able to before you feel comfortable to get on stage. There's a reason that these business um, settings that they do these in, they do these exercises over and over and over again until they, they start feeling more comfortable with these concepts. So you could try some of these as a group together. <laughs> you could all get together and just start whipping out improv exercises. That could be kind of fun. But I would not everyone will be on board for that. And you might have people, like I said, that you don't even know. You got to now try to be comfortable with. But considering these principles while playing, thinking of how to add to a scene, finding the value that everyone brings to the group, and finding ways to highlight their skills, not being, able, not being afraid to fail, and to not feel constrained to the limitations of your system, whether it be D&D, Pathfinder, Morkborg, whatever. Looking for the successes and failure, passing the leadership torch to another member, active listening as a constant, not just when you're the leader, and many, many more, will not only make you a better D&D player, but a better member of any group, period. So I highly recommend, if you're interested in anything I talked about today, to check out the book, Yes And, How Improvisation Reverses No-But Thinking and Improves Creativity and Collaboration. Lessons from the Second City by Kelly Leonard and Tom Yorton. Thank you so much for listening today. I appreciate it. This is a fun um, episode to, to write and to prepare for. Um, I've always been a huge fan of improv, um, and I think this is the... I, I learned a lot about my own D&D um, play style and how I can incorporate these into my own game, uh, so I hope you guys got something out of it too. Um, I'm looking forward to hopefully having the other one prepared for next week. If not, then I'll either try to find something else or we'll have a week off. Like I said, it's all kind of a, it's a weird influx kind of episodes nowadays um whenever i'm able to get them up get them out it's kind of the schedule right now i'm trying to keep it to a, a strict schedule as much as possible so i appreciate you listen appreciate you stand by if you learn anything today please comment down below how you are going to uh, implement the improv elements into your uh, tabletop rbg experience uh, you can either type it in comment at youtube.com just type in dungeon crawl podcast it'll pop up or hop into the discord go to the listener comment section and also let me know your thoughts see you next time thanks for hanging out